Hi, everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians and Indigenous peoples of Canada on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples and Squamish Nation, past, present, and emerging. Let's go. I'm your familiar stranger today, Sean, together with my familiar strangers, Natia Hello. and Emma. Howdy. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable details on today's episode. On today's episode, we are formally introducing our new familiar stranger, Natia. Natia, we would love to hear about the fascinating research that you've been conducting and are planning on doing in the future. Hi, Sean. It's so great to be here. I am excited and looking forward to my journey with the Familiar Strange. Currently, I'm working as a research assistant with one of my professors, and I am reading articles or doing a literature review on gender and mining in Asia. And it's been so interesting to see how when we imagine a miner, we imagine a strong usually a coal smitted face of a man and hardly a woman who actually does a lot of informal mining. And through my research, I've realized, or my professor has made me realize how much of the invisible or the underground work women actually do in mining. And that's what her research focuses on. And it's made me realize the invisible, unpaid, productive and reproductive labor that women do and often which goes unacknowledged in a lot of circles or in our imaginations because it's often portrayed that a minor is a hardworking, stereotypical, straight man who usually does the work. So this is just a starting of my research. So right now, realization is where I've reached and I look forward to do more research with my professor and see where I go with it. Yeah, that's me. Fantastic. It's, right. Thanks, Nitya. You're a research assistant at ANU, correct? Yeah, so my professor works under CAP, the College of Asia and Pacific. So yes, my research is at ANU's. And you've just completed your master's degree as well, yes? I have just completed my master's of anthropology degree. I graduated in December and that's how I figured out that I want to do gender because I kept taking gender courses every semester and I thought I want to like specialize in something in gender but I did not know what my specialization would be so that's why I'm dabbling in like different research projects right now to figure out what area of gender or sexuality I want to go into. Yeah, it's really fascinating that you outline those gender stereotypes of the stereotypical minor, right? It's the type of stereotypical image that we've been pushing against for something like doctors or nurses or teachers, where they have those stereotypical roles often presumed in Western society of who performs that type of labor and is in that type of job. So it's interesting that you've, you've taken mining and, and looked at this. I never thought about gender and mining being a topic until I met this professor and she told me, oh, this is a project. Do you want to do it? And I was like, interesting. I do not know anything about mining as a whole. And 
I've never really thought about women, minors, or minors who can be women or any other gender identity apart from men too. So why I started doing this project and I'm getting to learn and know so much about it. Thank you for, for challenging my own assumptions about minors. When I think of the stereotypical minor, I think of my grandfather, who was a Caucasian, Australian male, uh, lived in Wollongong and worked in the mines. So thank you for, for doing that for me. I think your current and future research area is super interesting, going to be very uh, relevant for the future. For me, the gender and mining kind of overlap is climate change and climate justice, um, because transition transitioning to net zero futures is going to include a need to bring along miners as well as the mining industry along for that journey so I think the possibilities for your research area and career are really exciting and and I look forward to seeing more thank you I'm excited to and I think climate change and mining are two interlinked aspects like mines are being flooded in a way because certain companies focus more on profit but also because a lot of flooding has increased due to global warming so I, I think these are such interrelated topics and it would be so interesting to see how climate change affects uh, mining and or how climate change affects women miners in particular so yeah that's a very interesting topic. And like another potential trajectory could be looking at the materials that are being mined, right? Because that's a massive area in like the STS field is looking at all of these emerging technologies that are supposed to save the planet. But like, what are the materials that they're being created from? And what are those processes and what are those processes contributing or not contributing to climate change? So, yeah, I think it's a super interesting topic area with so much potential. Also, what materials are officially banned? And it's interesting to see, I was reading an article that said that if you officially ban certain materials, the informal mining sector takes more profit from it. And like in the informal mining sector doubles up on mining other banned material, which impacts the miners in general, because informal mining means more risk and less payment for their work. So you're just putting more miners at risk by banning materials, which you know companies will eventually need and they will eventually be scarce. So informal mining will increase more. So yeah. Yeah, it's such a band-aid solution, right? Yeah. Like more regulation equaling less protection for the workers. It's and it's a loop. It's it's the circle. Like you the more informal mining is done, the more stricter the laws become against informal mining, but then more individuals think uh, more individuals lose their jobs, so more individuals need informal mining. So it's it's a loop that keeps going around. It's really fascinating. You mentioned the invisible and the invisible just keeps coming up in these in these different conversations, whether it's the invisible materials that are being mined or, or it's the invisible physical labor and reproductive labor of people that we don't see doing this mining, either in the formal or the informal sector. It really reminds me of a undergraduate text that I can't remember the name of currently, but we'll put it in the show notes for you later on illegal or informal sapphire mining in Madagascar. And the anthropological work that was done to meet these various illegal miners and how they made their lives 
going into national parks and mining sapphires or uh, other precious metals illegally. And a lot of the tensions both within the community, the local community, and the international community with park rangers trying to maintain this as a national park, as a national preservation site, but also people's need to make a living and to make a life. And being stuck on the the borders and the margins, they were almost forced into this invisible form of, of labor. So yeah, it's really fascinating. There's a lot of uh, a lot of connections and possibilities in your research moving forward. Yeah, it's so interesting to see uh, the balance. I would like to read the book, and it that balance is it's so difficult to strike the balance between okay, we need to preserve the environment, and but again, people need to earn a living, and if we do not mine certain areas it would be very good for the environment but then we there are so many people who will be losing jobs so what alternate jobs do we give them or what solutions are there so that they can continue a sustainable livelihood you need to think ahead the solution is not okay we need to stop mining and that's not just the solution it's also how do we rehabilitate these people and give them a livelihood that's so much more sustainable or how do we bring them into formal mining or mainstream mining instead of banning just mining or mining in certain areas influencing more informal mining and illegal mining oh that's all really really interesting and i'm really looking forward to hearing more about your research moving forward as you continue to be part of the familiar strange project hey emma i was wondering do you have any questions for the panel this week so my question for the panel is, what is your anthropology origin story? Sean, let's start with you. That's a really great question that you're asking, especially in light of International Anthropology Day, which has just occurred. My predilection for anthropology and trying to understand the human condition, I think goes back to my love and enjoyment for watching National Geographic documentaries, history documentaries. I ate up as much of that as I could as a as a kid before before going to high school. And one piece of media uh, that I think in hindsight that really galvanized my path uh, towards becoming an anthropologist, uh, maybe not explicitly, um, not at the time at least, but it certainly did have a, a large impact on what I chose to study on the discipline that I've ended up in for me becoming an anthropologist. Um, and that show is uh, Stargate SG-1, which is a television show that some of you might remember, the 1980s Kurt Russell film, Stargate. This is the show based off of that film, uh, began in 1999 and ran for 10 consecutive seasons. And sort of the premise of the show is that we've found a device, an alien device, a wormhole that allows us to travel to other planets. And on these other planets, aliens have taken various cultural groups from time periods throughout Earth's history and transplanted these peoples onto these planets. And in many ways, this team of, of travelers that goes to explore through the Stargate, these worlds, you, you get to have a reimagining of maybe what a, a culture might be like. So within the original Stargate TV show, it's uh, ancient Egyptians. They do the, the Minoans. There's a, an episode that resembles West Coast uh, indigenous peoples in, in North America. Uh, and then they also have the, the much more fanciful science fiction type aliens in, in some of the episodes. But a lot of it really has to do with that human connection about 
viewing other people's cultures, their ways of life, their, their life worlds, uh, and exploring those ideas through science fiction. And from there, going to university, uh, I was initially interested in psychology and philosophy and ended up taking a religious studies class, uh, which introduced me to polytheistic religions. Uh, up until this point, my own background in religion was really just about monotheistic religions, particularly Catholicism and and Christianity, growing up in a, in a household that went to church, having heard a lot of the, the stories from, from Christianity, um, it was fascinating to learn about different perspectives and different worldviews from polytheism, particularly that of uh, Buddhism and, and Hinduism. Learning a new language, learning a new way of, of, of writing, um, I thought was, was really fascinating. I had the opportunity to um, interview and, and spend some time with with a monk who was living in in Victoria uh, during that during that class, and it was a sort of my first taste of an, an ethnographic research project to be able to do do an interview in situ or an ethnographic interview, if you will, because I didn't record it at the time; I just wrote up field notes. From there, I, I moved universities uh, and didn't finish at the University of Victoria, but I moved to Simon Fraser University, and they didn't have a religious studies department, but they had an anthropology department, and I thought, well. How am I going to study what I'm interested about, uh, which was at the time, yeah, Eastern philosophy, polytheistic religion. I could do that through anthropology. And after taking the initial introduction to anthropology uh, and anthropology of few, food and ethnomusicology class, I ended up taking uh, anthropology of games, sport, and play. Um, and from there in my third year, I, I never... <laughs> I haven't turned back. I thought that being able to study sport games and play was so fascinating. I had no idea that it was a, an area that one could study anthropologically or ethnographically. Um, I thought it was only a you know, sport and game were for playing, for recreation, uh, for enjoyment, for, for fun. I didn't realize that you could attempt to understand people's life's worlds through their sport, to understand their cultures, their identity, embodied ways of learning, knowledge, through the games and sports that they play. And it's from there um, that I've continued on as a sport anthropologist and an anthropologist of the senses uh, to study swimming and will continue to, to look at, at swimming and various water-based and aquatic uh, sports playing games, um, I think, at least for the, for the foreseeable future. So that's a little, that's a simplistic version of my, my origin story. I'm going to pass it on to Emma. Since you asked me the first question, what's your origin story in anthropology? Okay, that's fair. I'll go next. So my origin story actually starts in high school. Uh, so year 11, year 12, Australian students do uh, courses dedicated to careers and we have the teacher up the front asking us, you know, what do you want to do with your lives? We have to do different exercises. I'm pretty sure we did the Myers-Briggs test uh, and I worked out that I am extroverted. <laughs> um, and in my high school experience, I was really, really fortunate enough to have a wonderful society and culture teacher, Mrs. Snell, who had a huge impact on my life back then. Um, so when I was doing these courses and these exercises, I came to her and, you know, I was asking her, like, you know me as a student and as a person and you're helping to shape this journey uh, 
what do you think I should do? And she pointed me in the direction of uh, cultural anthropology, specifically religious. Uh, yeah, so our origin stories, actually, Siobhan, uh, uh, are somewhat intertwined. Um, so society and culture students in Australia undergo what's called a personal interest project, which is basically a mini thesis. Uh, so my um, topic was the practice of henna. So I was interested in it as a um, an Indian rite of passage and ritual, something done by women uh, prior to their um, wedding ceremony. And I wanted to know more about the practice, why it was only women who conducted it, why they conducted it, and the origin stories of henna. Uh, it turns out henna is a practice that's been going on for thousands of years and has some amazing uh, religio-cultural myths wrapped up in it. So I presented this thesis and, and between me and Mrs. Snell and a couple of other uh, great teachers, I figured out uh, very fortunately as an 18 year old what my life path was going to be and I decided then that I would pursue a PhD in anthropology so I knew that uh, as an undergraduate student undertaking anthropology courses museum curation and uh, religious studies so I've taken a lot of theology courses in my life because there were not many other choices uh, at the university so I did what I could yeah that's my anthropology origin story in a nutshell. Thank you, Mrs. Snell. I'd like to pass it over to Natia now. What's your anthropology origin story? Thank you, Emma. Um, like you, my anthropology origin story also began in high school, but I did not have, I did not always have a very like-like relationship with anthropology because um, first day of year 12 I had a subject called anthropology and that was the first time that I heard of a subject called anthropology so I was curious to know what it was but my professor walked in and she was like oh anthropology is the study of tribal culture and that's when I was like oh I am so removed from tribal culture like I am a person who um, was brought up in an urban setting all my life and what is so-called tribal culture is I had only heard of it as oh people living in remote parts of India who had their own cultures and I felt very removed from what the professor thought anthropology was and what the professor claimed to be what was the mainstream perception of tribal culture and I was like, this is not a subject I want to take. And and there goes year 12. And in bachelor's, I had sociology. And, I, and again, the last year of bachelor's, I had anthropology. And I was like, oh, again, anthropology. And I don't really want to, like, again, study about, quote, unquote, tribal cultures. And is there a way to get out of it? And my professor was like, oh, like, sit for, like, the first class and see how you like it. If you don't like it, we can talk about alternatives, but do not change your subject because of a perception you formed in your high school. And I'm like, okay, I will give it a try. And then my bachelor teacher walks in and she's like, okay, you need to like forget everything that anyone, one of you knows about anthropology. Because I know like high school does not teach you anthropology. It, it teaches you only misconceptions and 
stereotypes about what people think anthropology is and then like she began with her presentation and I still remember the presentation and I remember it, it was like uh, an experience that opened my mind where she was like oh this is archaeology this is linguistic anthropology this is cultural anthropology and I'm like what is this like what have I just entered into like something that I thought was tribal culture is now like the world that I'm living in like I remember the teacher saying oh you're speaking right now but how uh, how am I speaking the same language as you and this is how, what you can explore in anthropology and so we had a system in college where I would often sit with like the other girls and often like the other guys would sit with other guys and the professor's like why are you sitting the way you are sitting right now in class and she's like okay this is also something you can research and explore in anthropology and that's why when I realized that everything that I've done in life the why question can be answered through anthropology and I think in that one lecture I was like okay I think this is a subject that I'm going to take ahead moving forward and so here I am I finished my master's and I think that was the best decision and the best lecture that I'd attended and I'm so glad that I decided to sit for what I thought quote-unquote was tribal culture or the subject of tribal culture so that's my story of the origins of anthropology and why I took it. It's fantastic to hear from everybody about their their origin stories in anthropology and how we all came to the discipline. It's so apparent that we're all interested in the human experience to some extent and the different facets of it. My my mentor and, and friend Tom Carter has uh, told me that he doesn't understand people and that's why he is an anthropologist because he wants to understand people. And there's no endpoint to understanding the human experience. So it always opens up new possibilities. Well, that's all we have time for today. I would like to thank familiar stranger, Emma. Thanks for having me. And new to the team familiar stranger, Natia. Thanks a lot, Sean and Emma. It was great to be here. And me, your host, Sean. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange, with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page patreon.com slash the familiar strange not the strange familiars which is another fun podcast just not ours you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com and be sure to follow us on twitter facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Ferrelli, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Margro. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>